0: We're going to be in Matthew 5 today as we keep kind of walking through the Sermon on the Mount. All year through 2023, we're focusing on this idea of what does it mean to intentionally live like Jesus. Who was Jesus? What did he do? How did he live? And then what are we supposed to do as followers of Jesus? And so we've been just starting in Matthew and just step by step asking the question each week, what is the teaching of Jesus? How does this make us live like him? I don't know if you've ever uh, done something or said something that in the time and in the moment, you didn't think it was a big deal. Like, it just didn't seem like a big thing to you until all of a sudden, like, that super weird tense awkwardness settled in. And turns out uh, the thing you poked was a little bit more sore than what you thought it was. Anybody ever done that? Um, Haley and I have this absolutely amazing relationship. I think we have this incredible, we get each other, we have the same humor. Uh, Most of the time I tell people, Haley and I, our sixth love language is sarcasm. Uh, We speak that together really well. We we mess with each other. If you're around us enough, you will hear it come out just naturally. In fact, it's enough that I'm worried that one day our son's going to be like four years old and sarcastic, and I don't know what that's going to be like. Um, So typically, that's how we are. I've learned pregnancy changes things a little bit. <laughs> now, now, before you just go off and you're like, oh my goodness, Philip's digging his grave and he's about to lie in it. This was her idea to start the sermon out this way. So you can't be mad at me for it. It was her suggestion. If you feel bad about it, talk to her. Not I'm just pushing it off there. But part of the last four months of our life has been this just like steady inflow of baby clothes. Just Piece of baby clothes after piece of baby clothes. So uh, Haley and her mom got back a few weeks ago from doing baby showers in Tennessee, uh, which my family's here from Tennessee today, so you can talk to them afterwards, too. Yeah, for sure. Um, so they got back, and uh, they were showing me all the different pieces of onesies and baby clothes they got, and this was one of the, the onesies that, that they received. Um, I don't know if you can read it, but whenever it comes up, we'll show you. Thank you. Uh, it says, outdoors like dad, which is funny. I don't know, like, if you're golfing, sure. But uh, as we were talking about this shirt, Haley's mom said something along the lines of, oh, that shirt will be adorable if you guys, like, take him hiking. To which I laughed. And then I said pretentiously, but not, like, sarcastically, Haley, hike. (laughs) That's hilarious. Because if you know Haley, she does not hike. You can ask her. She will say, I hate hiking. So I go, Haley, hike. And it just gets real awkward. And I look over, and there are just tears coming down Haley's face. Have you ever done those things where you just thought it was lighthearted, you poke it, and all of a sudden, oops, that's not... Welcome to what I think Jesus is doing at this moment in the Sermon on the Mount. It's not, it's not a one-for-one, one, and I recognize that it's not a one-for-one. One, but, but in a way, these six case studies he's about to give regarding the Old Testament Torah and what these laws are, what he's going to do is he's going to take that Torah law and he's going to say, hey, all of these things under this law that you think aren't really that big of a deal, they're actually much bigger of a deal than you realize. It's the moment that you look up and you realize this was heavier than what I thought it was going to be. So let's start with number one. Right off the gate, uh, the the one that I I hope in here we're all pretty good at keeping, uh, Thou shalt not murder. What Jesus says on it. Matthew chapter 5 verse 21. You've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. and First go and be reconciled with your brother or your sister. And then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you will be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. I think we got to start when we're going to break down what Jesus is trying to say with the verse right before this. Uh, All this starts to make sense, but I think verse 20 really helps to piece all of this together. Because in verse 20, Jesus finishes off his kind of discussion we did last week about uh, Christ and the law. And he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And we got to understand what Jesus is trying to do here, because if Jesus is saying, hey, your behavior, your, the, the, the actions you take, the things you do, that needs to outpace even the Pharisees, it's a really big claim. And I think it is something that Jesus wants to point us to, but in some ways that would be like saying, hey, your, your righteousness, it needs to outweigh Billy Graham's righteousness. And in your heart, you would say something along the lines of, well, Okay, but that's not fair. He has more resources and more training and more expertise and more opportunities than I do to be righteous. How can my righteousness surpass someone of that caliber? Welcome to what Jesus is getting at. Because for Jesus, this concept of righteousness is not just action-based. It's not just behavior modification. For Jesus, in fact, if you're going to experience all that God has for you, if you're going to live life the way he wants you to live life, It actually demands a heart transplant, behavior modification, Torah observation. None of that can get you there. So rather than focus on externals like murder or adultery, Jesus is going to go after those things that you can actually keep pretty secret if you want to. Those things that you can come to church and no one else really knows that you have that going on inside of you. Welcome to what Jesus goes after and it is far less comfortable than thou shalt not murder. So, He starts out, verse 21, You've heard it said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Really what Jesus is saying here is, in the Torah, one of the big ten, one of the ten commandments is, Do not murder. And then the Torah is going to go on and give extra commands, and it's also going to give all of these different judgments to be rendered to someone, depending on what happens. So, Uh, intentional murder versus manslaughter versus other things. There's going to be a bunch of different things that you should do. And so what Jesus is going to say is, you've heard it said, do not murder, and whoever murders is subject to one of those types of judgments in the Torah. That's what he's getting at. And then he goes after the emotion under the surface, verse 22. But I tell you, whoever is angry, it's that, that emotion, that feeling, that comes to our minds when our will is thwarted, when we have that expectation that just doesn't get met the way we thought it would, that's the emotion Jesus attacks. And it seems like Jesus believes that anyone who would allow anger to settle into their hearts, to to brew deep within them, causing contempt, and that's a word we're going to keep coming back to today, anyone that would allow that emotion to just settle into them, causing contempt for one of their neighbors... Is actually subject to the very same punishment the Torah says is applicable to murder, and he then takes it another step you 've heard it said don 't murder and anyone who murders is subject to judgment, but I tell you anyone that 's angry with their brother and sister is subject to the very same judgment, and then anyone who insults his brother or sister is subject to the court. I'm going to try not to do a lot of Greek today, but I have to do a little bit to get you to some of the things. So three, three key Greek words. I almost said geek words. It's kind of the same thing. Um, three key Greek words that I want to focus on. Uh, this one right here actually is not really a Greek word. This idea of whoever insults his brother or sister. Uh, the Greek, it's, it's the word racha, which if you know anything about Hebrew, that sound is a very Hebrew sound. Jesus, uh, it's actually the only time this is found in the Greek New Testament. Uh, It's not a Greek word. It's an Aramaic or a Hebrew word uh, that literally means empty of head. That's kind of the direct translation of it. This is the way that people would look at the person driving slow in the left lane, and they would say, that's racha. That person is empty of head. That is what Jesus is going after. When we say insult, that doesn't hit us close to home because we're not... We don't consider it insults when we say something about the car driving next to us on the highway. But Jesus does. Because Jesus comes in and says, whoever would look at some other person created in the image of God and say, you idiot, you whatever, and it gets worse from there, that person is subject to counsel. And that Greek word counsel matters too because you've actually probably heard the Greek word before. The Greek word for counsel is our word Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the official council of Jerusalem, tasked to deal with all the nuanced and complex discussions and and conflicts within their culture. And it's their job to sort through that and divide out what's supposed to be dealt with in a heavenly and godly way. And and so I, I want you to understand what Jesus is doing here, it feels silly. And I think Jesus is intentionally kind of having a chuckle with you as he says this. To bother such a prestigious group of men tasked to discuss and oversee the complex, nuanced conflicts with a simple common insult—it's like it's like a kid coming in from recess and they go up to the teacher and they're like, "Miss teacher, he called me goofy head," and the teacher's like, "Well, we're going to have to take you to the magistrate court, see what they say about this." Like, that's the emotion I think that Jesus is getting at behind this. Because you don't bother the Sanhedrin with something as lighthearted as calling someone else Racha. It's not that important, Jesus. And so I I can just envision this. I don't know. I wasn't there, of course. But as Jesus is saying this, he kind of chuckles. And the crowd kind of chuckles with him at the absurdity of going to the Sanhedrin. And as he's patting you on the back, chuckling with you, he takes the knife and just stabs you with it. Because that's what Jesus does. So he laughs with you, and then he goes to his next step, and he says, And anyone who says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. That's where the record scratch happens. Wait a minute, Jesus, this was not the tone of what you just said. What do you mean, whoever says, you fool, is subject to hellfire? Because this is really interesting as we start trying to contextually piece this together, because first of all, does the Bible hesitate to point out the existence of fools in the world? Have you read Proverbs? <laughs> over and over again, Proverbs is going to point out to you that there are such things in this world as fools. It will say things like in Proverbs 1, seven, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Or Proverbs 17.28, I just included this one because I like it. Even a fool is considered wise when he keeps silent. Like, the Proverbs recognize the existence of fools. It's all throughout that book. So I don't think Jesus is commenting on whether there is or are not fools in the world. What he's commenting on is that when we become the judge of that, we give ourselves this ability to write people off entirely rather than seeing that person as God sees them. It's a comment on our ability as people to develop contempt and hatred of people around us. And by the way, this idea of contempt and the ability to just write someone else off, it has become way too normal in our culture. Like it is so easy to do for us today. It's that snobbery. I think that's the best word I can think about when I think of this. It's that snobbery that sets in and it looks at others and it highlights all of their weaknesses and none of their strengths while looking at us and highlighting all of my strengths and none of my weaknesses. And welcome to like 21st century internet. Like it's all over the place. It's in our politics. Anyone that voted for that person, gosh, I just can't believe people are that dumb. And it's like both sides. It doesn't matter which side you pick or uh, people from that town, oh, everyone from that town's a moron. You can't trust people from that town. Anyone that listens to that type of music, you can't trust people that listen to that. And we're just writing off people that we're better looking down our nose because they think a certain way or they grew up in a certain town or they dress a certain way. Our culture, I would just say to you as kindly as I can, I think, is a breeding ground for that type of contempt. And Jesus sees that type of contempt as deserving of hellfire. I know that gets real awkward when we say the word hellfire in church. It used to be like everyone could just preach hellfire and that's what was normal. It's not so much anymore. And I think that's okay because in some ways uh, we've come to this point in culture and in church where we've developed some pretty cartoonish viewpoints on hell. So if I say hell and you close your eyes and you envision it, I don't know because you're probably going to all come up with something different. But I would argue that likeliness is it's that cave where everything's on fire and there's this like red skin goat man poking you with a pitchfork and like that's that's hell and that's not biblical i I would just say like that's not i mean you're picking from words like fire and then inserting all the rest of it in stuff like that's not helpful when we're thinking about what jesus is talking about and then on top of that um it's that misconception of hell Uh, That's then combined with the guy in the bullhorn on the college campus that's just yelling, these people go to hell. And so that concept of this type of person deserves this type of punishment, we've kind of developed this word where we just write it off. Where we just say, we don't want to think about that, we don't want to talk about that. So it's really worth our time to take just a few moments and do everything we can to contextualize this so that we can best understand it the way Jesus means it to be understood. Now, as we do this, I want to be very clear off the top. I'm kind of breaking away from the text because I I want to spend a few minutes here focusing on this. I think it's really important. Jesus and every single one of the New Testament authors absolutely speak of hell as a real place that you do not want to end up in. That is the context that's given all throughout the New Testament. It's often associated with things like burning and destruction and weeping and the gnashing of teeth. And all of that is horrible. But far, far worse is that hell is portrayed as this place where every ounce of God's compassion and every ounce of his grace is removed and the absolute devastation and destruction of sin is allowed to fester and consume for all eternity. Now, there's far more that we could be said about that. And nothing I'm about to say about this challenges or refutes that. Still, it's, it's worth considering the context of what Jesus is saying here. So Jesus says, and anyone who says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. The, the literal Greek is this term of the fire of Gehenna. The pyra, pyro of Gehenna. And Gehenna is, in this context, a real place. It's not just the place you go when you die. The people listening to Jesus would have pictured the location called Gehenna. It's a first century Judaism right outside south of Jerusalem Valley referred to in the Old Testament as the Valley of Ben-Hinnom. If you start going back to the Old Testament and piecing through some things, you find that this valley in the story of Israel's history is the location of one of the lowest, most horrible moments of their nation. So in 2 Chronicles 28, Israel's being led by a guy named King Ahaz, and he's this horrible, horrible king. And 2 Chronicles 28.3 tells us this, King Ahaz burned sacrifices in the valley of ben Hinnom, the same valley Jesus is referring to, and sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. If you go to Jeremiah years later, God's going to take the prophet Jeremiah and he's going to send him back to this very valley and have Jeremiah speak over this valley and tell Jeremiah to say, Israel has filled this place with the blood of the innocent." They have built the high places of Baal and burned their children in the fire offerings to Baal. So beware of the days coming when people will no longer refer to this place as the Valley of ben Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. And so by the time Jesus gets on the scene, um, you can probably take a guess about how much, uh, you know, land cost is in the Valley of, of Gehenna. No one really wants to move out there. No one's really interested in living there. And so what happens is Jerusalem starts to turn this valley into a trash dump. They just start throwing trash over the wall. Uh, some scholars will look back and say it's probably like this burning trash dump because they weren't as environmentally conscious as most people today. So what else do you do? You just burn your trash. In fact, if you had people that they, they didn't have money or maybe they were, uh, didn't have a place to be buried, you would just throw the body into the fat trash dump and just burn it right there on the spot. So if you take that mental image, and I'm not saying that doesn't have a meaning for future what hell will be, Gehenna at least is still this metaphor for the devastating judgment to come later because it was a reminder of all the chaos and evil that sin brings to humanity. That that turns out your sin is not just what takes you and pushes you that direction, it's actually what takes that concept and brings it even closer than what you realize. It's sin's ability to destroy in ways you never thought possible. So while Jesus is undeniably making some sort of comment about the looming reality of hell waiting those who choose to follow their own way rather than following his, it's worth noting that if, for, for Jesus... If you give into anger and you let it fester and rot inside of you, that threat of hell and that destruction is not just future, it is present. Welcome to what anger will do to your life. We have to understand that Jesus' only concern is not what happens when we die. Yes, Jesus is concerned about that, but Jesus is also concerned with what happens as we live. This idea of heaven and hell as the place we go when we die. I think it's just like we bob along here or we think about it like we just bob along through life. And one of these days we finally shut off all this and we're done with it. We don't have to worry about it. But the Bible far more conveys this idea that you are already on a trajectory. That your life is treading towards one of those locations. Meaning that if you're following in the kingdom of God, then you already get tastes of heaven here in this world as you live for him. And if you're treading away from God and you're following your own way, you will begin to get tastes of hell. Both of these are real realities in the worlds that we live in. The actions we take or even just the things we believe in this life right now has very real consequences. And if your here and now is consumed with the fire of anger, it will create hell in your life. I don't know how else to say it. Anger will ruin your relationships. It will ruin your experiences, your marriage, your family, your church, your children. It will decimate everything you love because it will consume you. So what do you do? Jesus gives you two examples. Verse 23, he says, hey, so, so if that's you, if you have that problem and you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that one of your brothers or sisters has something against you, leave your gift in the front of the altar and go and be reconciled, then come back and offer your gift. we have probably heard that preached a bunch of times and it's absolutely true. It gets even more complicated when you put it again into context because where is Jesus when he's teaching this? The Bible tells us he's up around Galilee. So he's about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. And every single person listening, when you hear the idea of taking your offering to the altar, it was this idea that every person usually once a year would make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they would bring a goat or a sheep or a dove or something with them and they would bring it to the altar and they would lay it down for the priest to sacrifice on behalf of their sins. So 80 mile trek down to the altar and Jesus says, hey, you've made your 80 mile p- pilgrimage. That's a long way when you're walking it. You made your 80 mile p- pilgrimage to Jerusalem and you get there and you get the goat up to the altar and the priest is about to put the knife through the goat so that it dies and you realize you've got something going on at home that you need to deal with. You just go ahead and leave Mr. Goat with the priest and you go back and deal with that. Do you understand how madly inconvenient that is? Jesus, that's That's ridiculous. That, that's counterintuitive. And I would just say like as kindly as I can, wel- welcome to the reality of following this carpenter from Nazareth. He's very rarely consider, uh, considering of your convenience. That's, that's not what God's all about. Sometimes he calls you to things that feel counterintuitive. But this is how seriously Jesus takes Reconciliation. And then he goes into verse 25 and he gives another example about going to court against somebody. And I don't have time to go into all of that. Just to sum it up, I would say, Jesus is getting at, if you're that type of person that constantly needs a court or someone else to solve every minor problem you have with people, you're probably just going to end up hurting yourself in the process. It's better if you can learn this lifestyle of reconciliation that you can navigate the conflicts in your own life. Because welcome to life, you will have conflicts. So here, here's Jesus' point. If I could just put kind of a summary statement on all of this. Here it is. Your relationship with God is always tied up with your relationship to those around you. Your relationship with God this way is always tied to your relationship with people this way. And your relationship with people this way can easily and quickly be dismantled in anger. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to live in my kingdom, you've got to be able to deal with this you got to be able to deal with anger. So if we're going to be a church and we're going to focus on intentionally living like Jesus this year, that means we must deal with anger correctly. Intentionally living like Jesus means we deal with anger correctly. For for Jesus, anger is this vicious cycle that will ruin your relationships when it's allowed to fester. It will ruin... everything you love, and that ruin comes faster than you think, and it's way closer than you ever thought possible, because it doesn't come in just murder. That's the extreme, but it's actually far closer, because it comes in a snide comment. It comes in a put down. And while prayerfully, hopefully, like almost none of us are capable of murder, every single one of us is capable of having our egos wounded and writing off the person who wounded us as racha, as as empty of head, and developing contempt before that person. And before you know it, that contempt begins to leak out into what we say. And and while we in our minds think it's harmless, (laughs) Haley, hike. What seems to be harmless, actually, to Jesus is bringing the destruction of hellfire. Harming other people. And families and churches, lingering anger will dissolve your community. So anger must be dealt with through reconciliation. And we could just kind of end there and say, so, go reconcile, deal with it. And I think that's a fair assumption. I think that is absolutely what Jesus is telling us to do. That is his application. But as we close out, I want to take five, ten minutes and just give you what I think are some really practical ways to help deal with anger. Because while we've talked about this, we've never really did a dive into what is anger and how do we deal with it. So uh, just just a couple things as I get started. Number one, I'm pulling all this stuff from a book by an author named uh, Tristan Collins. Uh, She's a Christian licensed counselor uh, in Portland, Oregon. She wrote a book called Why Emotions Matter. Um, So I'm about to plagiarize everything she wrote. I'm going to take it as my own, but there I gave her credit for it. So she has a whole section in her book about this concept of dealing with anger. So the very first thing she says is, hey, if we're going to deal with anger, we need to understand what anger is. So the foundation of anger, to the the best of what we can kind of define it, is that anger is just unmet expectations. When something we want to happen or something we think should happen doesn't happen. And we all carry these expectations with us in our lives and in the world around us. So typically these expectations are things based off of just what we assume. Dude, there should not be traffic at this hour. I live in Portales, New Mexico. Why is this road so busy? Or Sonic should not be this slow. They're fast food. You you get these assumptions, these expectations. And then when those get violated, sometimes it's a bit more serious than that. Sometimes it's based off of cultural norms or what you have said is normal for your life. I should be married by 30. Why am I not... Married. I should have a job that's meaningful and fulfilling. Why am I left and everyone else is out living a life with meaning? Or maybe it's based off of your framework of morality. People should tell the truth. People should be held accountable for the damage that they cause. Anger is that typical emotion we experience when one of those expectations fall through. And the first thing we then have to say is, is that emotion sinful? No. It actually can't be because Jesus experiences that emotion. Jesus walks into the temple and expects it to operate in a certain way. And when it's not operating that way, Jesus gets angry. This is why Paul will come in and say, hey, be angry, but don't sin. That emotion is an unavoidable emotion in your life because you will carry around expectations that will get violated. The question is, then what do you do? So, so four things and we'll talk through these pretty quickly. But number one, allow yourself time to cool. Number two, evaluate the thoughts you're experiencing. Number three, examine your expectations. And number four, problem solve using compassionate communication and confrontation. So, just I'm going to go pretty fast here, so, so bear with me. Number one, allow yourself time to cool. When you're feeling that rush of anger and that blood pressure goes up and your face starts to tingle, slow down, take some deep breaths, go for a walk write in a journal, anything that's just going to help create some space for you to cool down and process. Now that may not be able to happen in the exact moment, but the best you can wait to start taking actions because I would just say the things you do and the things you say in a fit of anger cannot be undone. They can be forgiven. They cannot be undone. So slow down. Number two, evaluate your thoughts. More often than not, uh, when that moment of anger settles in, you lose the ability to think with nuance. So you can start looking for words that will actually clue you into this. Words like never or always. She never listens to me. He always brings that up when we talk about this. And you'll start noticing these words coming up. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapists call this uh, thinking errors. And that's fine. Uh, But the Bible, I would just say, calls it lies. Lies. Like That's just what, what the Bible says. And anytime you let lies run free in your mind, it will distort your perception of reality and it will create more anxiety and anger and all of this other stuff. So, so evaluate your thoughts. As you look for those lie words, like never or always ask questions like, is that thought true? Can I absolutely know it's true? Can the opposite be true? And this helps to loosen your emotional grab on the relationship and get to the surface of the problem. So let's, let's do a case study real quick through all of this. Um, let's say something something that never happens every, anywhere so so it won't be relatable I don't think but let's say uh, your husband never volunteers to help with the kids when he gets home from work something that never happens I know that but um, so one evening you know you got the two year old crying in one hand the four year olds clung to your leg the six year old sitting at the table going I want a snack. I want to, and it's just while you're cooking, and your husband gets home, and you think, finally, relief's here, and he sits down in his chair, and he just kicks up his thing and just turns on the TV. And you can feel that anger start coming (laughs) in. How dare this man do this to me? And so you start thinking, and the thought that comes to your mind is, My husband does not care about this family. So start asking questions. If you can slow down enough, just to get into a space of mind to think. Ask stuff like, is that true? And I would say, it might be. Like you might have to deal with that. Maybe your husband has some problems that he needs to navigate through and you guys need to get help. That's okay, but ask that question, is it true? And then ask the question, can I definitively know that it's true? And the answer to that one is probably not. Unless he tells you, I don't care a thing about this family. And if that happens, that's like red flag. We, we really need to get some help in that relationship. And by the way, stuff like that does happen. How do you navigate that? But if the answer to that is no, you, you can't really be entirely sure, then ask, can the opposite ever be true? So if the thought is, my husband does not care about this family, well, what's, what's the opposite? My husband cares about this family. Are there ways that you can look at the note, the ways that your husband does care? Well, he works and he carries some of the financial burden so that I don't have to. He does better on the weekends. Uh, than he does during the work week, and he does speak love and life into my children, even when he's not being active. So as you're beginning to ask these questions and walk through this, what we're trying to do is get you to identify the violated expectation, because the reality is the violated expectation is probably not, I married a jerk, and I can't believe I'd even marry this guy. It's, I think he's supposed to act this way when he gets home, and he thinks he's supposed to act this way, and we have a disconnect. Welcome to what anger is. Anger is that emotion that's just communicating to us, hey, one of your expectations isn't being met, we need to resolve this expectation. And if you can get to what the expectation is, then number three, just examine that expectation. If you can really think through the expectation that was violated, you can ask, is this expectation reasonable and worth keeping? And I would say getting to that point takes time. Sometimes it takes talking to someone that you can trust that will be honest with you. It takes a lot of prayer and understanding your Bible, and it takes Jesus. All of these things are needed. But with all due respect, I I would just say, sometimes your expectations can be wrong and misguided. You can just develop a view of the world that's not realistic. So while you may be framing it as, is it too much for my husband to get home and help with the kids while I make dinner? Your husband's framing it as, is it too much to ask for 20 minutes of rest when I get home from work? Both people have to learn to redirect that anger into compassionate conversation and confrontation. And like, I get it. Confrontation is hard. Jesus doesn't come in and say these things because he's going to expect you to just go apply it instantly. He's saying it's going to take transforming your mind, transforming your heart. See, it's much easier to just keep passively passively aggressively stacking the trash up in the trash can until your husband finally realizes he needs to take it out. Like, that's way easier. It's far harder to be open and vulnerable and say, hey, I thought this was how you should act. And Jesus is saying, if we're going to reconcile... We actually have to have the latter standpoint, that we communicate those expectations and we start to talk through these problems. This is where Paul's going to come in and he's going to say, be angry and do not sin. It's where Jesus is going to come in and say, if you are angry with your brother, you're subject to the same judgment as murder. But rather go and reconcile if possible. And so as we close out, I would just, to the best of I can, remind you, first and foremost, how God sought to reconcile with you But because if anger is unmet expectations, none of us have lived up to God's expectations. It's just how it is. If anger is your unmet expectations, I'm telling you, God had expectations for your life that you did not live up to. He has plenty of reasons to be mad at you. But rather than writing us off, God chases after us in love, and then he offers to forgive us. This is why in Exodus 34, the Bible will say things like, the the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. And abounding in faithful love and truth. So if what Jesus is doing through his teachings and his death and his resurrection is forgiving our sins, it's God reconciling with us and transforming our hearts so that we can have a righteousness unlike anything else. It's not behavior modification. It's a change from within us. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus then calls us to do the same standard of life but a standard that's not a checklist of behavior modification, but is a transformation of our hearts from the inside out. And so I would just ask you, is that the type of person you live as? Are you the type of person that you just let anger settle into your heart and you're constantly mad and upset? And I would say, you need need to give that to Jesus. And maybe you've never given that to Jesus and just this morning... You're saying, Philip, I've never been able to let go of this stuff, and I would say our Savior has pursued you, and He wants to restore you so that you can be renewed and forgiven, and you can do that right now. I'll be up here somewhere. Come talk to me. I would love to talk with you about that. And I would just say, what What if First Baptist becomes? What if that becomes the norm of First Baptist? What if we become a place with where rather, where, where rather than anger. We default to grace and forgiveness. What if, rather than grudges and distrust and passive-aggressive comments, we become people who process our emotions and anger well, and then we compassionately have discussions and even confrontation with each other. And I'm not saying confrontation in like a, we're going to yell at each other, but the, hey, did you realize when you said, Haley Hike, it hurt my feelings a little bit? And we talk through that. What if, rather than giving into the system of outrage that seems to be all over this culture. We operate on a system of love. Might the culture of First Baptist Church look different and be noticeable to the world out there? Might the people of First Baptist begin to make a noticeable difference in our community? But for that to happen, it has to start with you. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are who you say